Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. What causes chronic fatigue? Do you know what kind of answers we normally get? It is a ideologic answer. It's someone saying... Lyme can do that. Viruses can do that. Mold can do that. Stress. Uh, stress can do that. Psychological things. They're all making it up. But what I feel that I have been, you know, somewhat uh, out as an outlier, saying, I don't care what the mechanism is. We've been able to show the lab abnormalities and symptoms march in step. The final common pathway says it doesn't matter what started off this process, it is the physiology that we need to pay attention because the physiology is what we're going to fix. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the symptom tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 171 with physician and researcher Dr. Richie Shoemaker. Also welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode you will learn what antibiotic use does to your mitochondria, the role statins play in epigenetics, and how antibiotics may be doing you more harm than good. Thanks, Aurora. As you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Every week we have listeners from all over the world This past week, we have listeners from Nigeria to Norway and from Kingston, Canada to Tokyo, Japan. Also, I'd like to give a big thank you to all you longtime Lime Ninjas out there. Aurora and I really appreciate you listening, and we'd also like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. And this week, our top 10 tune-in cities are... Starting at number 10 is Mendham, New Jersey. Number 9, Charleston, West Virginia. Number 8, Seattle, Washington. Number 7, Avon, Connecticut. Number 6, Granby, Connecticut. Number 5, Los Angeles, California. Number 4, Charlotte, North Carolina. Number 3, Montreal, Canada. Number 2, Renton, Washington. And number 1... Gainesville, Florida. Congratulations, Gainesville. Is Gainesville the home of, uh, they're going to kill me, Florida or Florida State? 
Send hate mail to LimeNinjaRadio.com <laughs> and let us know which one's right. I can't remember off the top of my head. Anyway, one of those Florida universities. <laughs> if you love what we're doing, make sure to head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. And if you really love what we're doing, consider becoming a Lime Ninja patron. That's something new. If you head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com, you'll see the link and it'll take you over to the Patreon website, our Patreon site. And there you can sign up to, to securely give us a small donation every month. We'd really appreciate it. Lime Ninja Radio proudly presents the Lime Ninja Top 10 transcripts. It's been a long time coming. It's been a long time coming. They're finally transcribed <laughs> and edited. Featuring the concentrated wisdom of three years of podcast episodes featuring experts like Dr. Richard Horowitz, Brendan Cosentino, the real food level. Did I say Brendan? Yes. I said I Brenda Constantino, the real food rebel, and genetic nutrition expert Bob Miller. You can get those transcripts now by going to our website, LimeNinjaRadio.com, and like McKay said, become a patron of Lime Ninja Radio at the $10 level. Thanks, Aurora. There's been a long time coming, both getting organized about the donations through Patreon and also the Lime Ninja Top 10 transcripts. We promised those six January. weeks ago. Yeah, we've been a little remiss in getting them done. But they're finally done. But they're finally here. Yes. All right, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about this week's guest, Dr. Richie Shoemaker. Dr. Richie Shoemaker has been the leader in the field of research into the effects of toxic mold on the human body and has collaborated on both national and international research teams on this topic. Dr. Shoemaker... Dr. Shoemaker graduated from Duke University, and before he retired, he practiced medicine in Pocomoke, Maryland. Dr. Shoemaker has published eight books. The newest is Surviving Mold. He also has numerous publications in scientific research journals. You can find more of his work at survivingmold.com. Thanks, Aurora. And here's our interview with Dr. Richie Shoemaker. Dr. Shoemaker, this is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Well, I'm pleased to meet you. Likewise. Now, are you ready just to dive right in, or would you like a little context first? Context will be fine. I, I would imagine you can do that in a paragraph or two. Oh, I hope a sentence or two. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, I, I would like to talk just a little bit about uh, how you got interested in mold and then how that transitions into fatigue, which is obvious to most people, but I'd like to hear your particular take on that. And then we can talk about your paper that came out fairly recently about the uh, SIRS and the particular biomarkers. And really, you've laid down the gauntlet in that document. It's really an amazing document. Well, thank you for, for paying attention to that. I thought, well, it'd be one more time. I've shot my mouth into the wind, and the breeze is blowing the wrong way. <laughs> well, given the uh, tree you're barking up, it's almost a guarantee. However, these things have a way of uh, worming their way into consciousness, shall we say. I had given a talk at the ILADS conference in 2016 in Philadelphia, 
and John Alcott from Hopkins presented his uh, data on some transcriptomics in a paper he had published with uh, University of San California, San Francisco, and in Hopkins. And the lead authors is Jerome Bouquet, so we all call that the Bouquet paper. But he looked at uh, acute Lyme patients diagnosed by tick bite and ECM rash. Until I'm old, I call it ECM. And whether they had antibody studies or not was irrelevant for, for this study's purposes. They were, the IRB let them give three weeks of antibiotics. They looked at gene abnormalities at baseline when they first seen within two weeks of, of a tick bite and a rash. And then they looked at the gene activation slash suppression after antibiotics, and it was 1,300 were abnormal to begin with, and about 1,000 were abnormal after antibiotics. And after six months of follow-up, they brought people back in. There were 600 abnormalities in genes, and there were two groups of people, some that felt fine, some that didn't feel fine at all. They were still quite ill. They all had the same 600 abnormal values. And it was pretty clear from that 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 data needed to be reproduced. We did the same thing, a little bigger study, and did not reproduce their studies uh, the same way at all. And that's that's kind of like what, what I would like to see us talk about. Uh, I had left ILADS in 2002. I was disgusted with what I didn't think was adequate rigor. That was my opinion, and I still hold that today. Uh, but at the same time, after Alcott gave his talk on, on abnormalities in genes, I talk about Neuroquan as a really good diagnostic uh, effort to, to show Lyme injury in the brain. And as opposed to Alcott, I showed correction of the gene abnormalities. <laughs> and nobody said a word. I'm just reminded of so many medical pioneers who share your story. They're out yeah. in the wilderness, and you're in Pocomoke, so that's not the wilderness, but it's the swamp. <laughs> well said. And, and, and these voices, that's where true innovation comes from all the time, whether you're talking about Malcolm Gladwell and his outliers or any other discussion like that, Coke and, and uh, discovering the tuberculosis bacteria and so forth and so on hand washing and semi-wise it just goes on and on and on it's the same thing over and over again it's it's human it's not science it's human nature and luckily science eventually does overcome human nature one of the fascinating spin-offs because the next paper we're going to have won't be focusing online but <clears throat> going back to chronic fatiguing illnesses and pursuing mitochondria and ribosomal things is that uh, for 20-some years in the chronic fatigue world, if we say, what causes chronic fatigue? Do you know what kind of answers we normally get? It is a etiologic answer. It's someone saying, Lyme can do that. Viruses can do that. Mold can do that. Stress. Uh, stress can do that. Psychological things. They're all making it up. But what... I feel that I have been, you know, somewhat uh, out as an outlier, saying, I don't care what the mechanism is. We've been able to show the lab abnormalities and symptoms march in step, the final common pathway 
says it doesn't matter what started off this process. It is the physiology that we need to pay attention because the physiology is what we're going to fix. It's the only thing you can fix. Yeah, yeah. So if, if, you, if you start from Los Angeles or San Francisco and you're headed for, for St. Louis, it doesn't matter where you started. It's where you end up. And that's what we think we've got. My background, well, my profession, I'm an acupuncturist, so that I see the people who are disgusted with those type of explanations for whatever they're suffering with, even even if it's something more simply diagnosed, and they don't like their options, basically. And so I get people who are falling through the cracks, essentially, and trying to figure out a way to bring them back to health, whether it's lifestyle changes or simple dietary changes, and then the acupuncture itself. However, what what you're talking about is really dragging traditional medicine, kicking and screaming to to look with the tools that they have. Now, why, in your opinion, is it so slow to adopt new – is doctors so busy? What, what's going on over there? on the treatment side of things? Well, if I have built my career talking about inflammation and things inside moldy buildings, and I stake my reputation on that, and any kind of notoriety I might have comes from that thought, and any publications come from that thought, and someone comes along and says, you're full of baloney, that's nothing to do at all, and you're wrong. I don't think I'm going to like that guy very much. I'm not going to you know, be very nice to him, and I'm going to show that he's wrong. He's, he's attacking the very basis of, of the Virgin Mary, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but the other, the other reason, cynically, I... I actually don't know how many people read this paper. It's in a, a weird journal. Uh, I've, I've heard from a number of people that, that have read it, I think because we put it out on a blast. Where, where did you find it? How, how did it come across your radar? I think a listener brought it to my attention. I don't remember exactly. It was not through a literature search. Well, and, and most docs just don't read they get their information from drug companies. They get their information from conferences that have a particular bias or spin, whether they know it or not. What speakers they listen to have been selected. The message has been selected. And they just don't read. That would explain it. I train physicians in my protocol. And we've had 150 or so sign up and 30 or so have passed my tests and all that. The normal the one guy was an anesthesiologist from the Cleveland Clinic. He says, I'm, I'm, my, my practice doesn't involve talking to patients. This looks fascinating. I sent him my test. He sent it back three weeks later. He had, there's 210 questions. He had two right answers. So it just wasn't paying attention. Right. I mean, you had, you, you had to read. Yes. You had to go look for it. Well, you know, that you bring up an interesting point. I won't get too sidetracked here in, into uh, how education works within medicine. Some of my favorite interviews that I've heard over the years on various podcasts and, and read 
are physicians who either a family member or themselves got seriously yep. sick yep. and their colleagues fail, and then they have yep. to go back to the literature, right? And they start yep. reading. Yep. And it's a big 10-4 for that, good buddy. That is absolutely true. Here, so this is a personal question for you. Uh, I was bit and had a rash about 15 years ago. And for the most part was just lucky. The rash came right away. I got treatment right away, although not sufficient. It seemed to be good enough until last May where I uh, ended up with Parsonage Turner syndrome, which essentially bell, Bell's palsy of the brachial nerve. So, wow. so my, my right arm became uh, an appendage for, for several months. And at the, at the same time, my blood pressure did the opposite. It, it skyrocketed. Is that part of that, this mechanism that it could work the other way? Or is that some other pathway being affected? If you block the receptor for epinephrine and norepinephrine, those two modulators will not be taken out of the circulation. Huh. They will stay. That makes sense. I used to keep track of the different cranial nerve palsies, uh, and finding one for cranial nerve 11 was hard, 12 was easy, uh, the eyes are predominant, Bell's palsy gets all the publicity, mm-hmm. but just about every cranial nerve is involved. I would suspect that instead of Bell's palsy of the brachial nerve, that what you really were looking at was an abnormality and, and, and the acronym here is TRPV, Transient Receptor Potential Vanilloid Series. Those sensory neurons are key in, in peripheral neuropathy, but they have three fibers or three release, secretions released by the fibers. One is called substance P, used to be called capsaicin, pro-inflammatory. The other is calcitonin gene-related peptide, anti-inflammatory. And the third is VIP. Uh. And I maintain in my, my, my armchair quarterback here that if you had been treated with VIP, your dead arm for a year would have been better in a month. How about that? I've always maintained acupuncture did more for TRPV than anything else. So is this new ground for you? In terms of the, the science here? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. My my background is a, beyond the acupuncture is as a English literature major. <laughs> so I'm self-taught. I'm diving in as deep as I can and ho- holding on for dear life with the biochemistry. When you go on PubMed and type in TRPV, I think I'll have taken most of your afternoon away from you. I love rabbit holes. I'm I'm going to go this, in. This it's a good one. It's a good one. Is there anything you wanted to circle back to with your wife's experience and the cardiomyopathy? In 2005, I thought that the answer to all of the questions that I could not answer with proteomics or blood tests or with symptoms or with visual contrast or with other modalities of diagnosis that I talk about, I thought that gene abnormalities would be crucial to finding the answer. That was just a few years after the Human Genome Project hit the presses and 
billions of dollars to accomplish this incredible feat of science. And I said, well, I'm going to start collecting two extra tubes of blood called Pexgene tubes. They cost $20 a piece on everybody I saw. And I was going to put them in a freezer because I knew that at some time the transcriptomics, the genomics would catch up and I would have all these samples in my freezer. So as time went by, not only did I start to see that drugs like VIP did miraculous things with folks with chronic fatiguing illnesses, and I'll probably be using that term more than once with Lyme and mold and chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia being the ones people mostly talk about, but there's others, lots of others. But I started seeing VIP being a miracle drug, and I started saying, what does it do? Well, we published a paper showing it fixed proteomics, and that was fun. But what I really had fun was when I finally had access and, and, and owned a, a DNA sequencer made by Illumina. It's FDA cleared when you, before you open the box. It's, you know, there's no, no requirement the personnel be trained, but <laughs> the results are FDA cleared because of the quality of the machine. But $300,000 later, I find that VIP is fixing genomics. And then we start looking at other elements along the way, and lo and behold, mold patients have a different genomic abnormality set than Ciguatera people do. Chronic fatigue is all over the map. There's no universal findings in, in, in chronic fatigue because it's, it's a misnomer. But then fibromyalgia was even worse than chronic fatigue. No kidding. But then we had Lyme come along, and the biggest problem was finding diagnoses of Lyme that could be validated. Uh, in 2015, there's a Norway conference called Norvect, the Norway Vector Conference. It's been doing line for a while. And Joe Beruscano has been a friend for years. And he said, well, why don't you present your neuroquant stuff? So the brain imaging study we showed was showing a distinctive abnormality in putamen and, hippoc- and, uh, and the, the right side of the thalamus and mold was showing uh, forebrain parenchyma and cortical gray and, and caudate nucleus and then pallidum. So we could separate Lyme from mold immediately. It took less than 10 seconds to look at a report and know which is which. And the basis for that statement was 100 Lyme patients collected from four or five practices, all validated by physician observation of ECM rash, and most of them in antibody studies too. But what we found is that if you had an ECM rash and that was it, Neuroquant was positive 12 of 13 cases. If you had a Western blot that came from Stony Brook or Robert Wood Johnson, 12 of 13 again. If you were a LabCorp or Quest, it was about 5 of, five of 12. But if you were iGenics, we had 3 of 41 positive IgMs where Igenix correlated with Neuroquant, and then we had one of 43 of the IgG for Igenix that correlated with Neuroquant. So here we have kind of an outlier, and when I looked at an online population, I said, we are only going to use people diagnosed with Lyme by a physician observed uh, tick bite or a Western blot from Stony Brook or Robert Wood Johnson. And that eliminated a lot of the noise, and suddenly when we did that, we had a very clear signal for Lyme. And 
as I mentioned to you in, in an email, what we looked at, I, my cutoff was two days. I saw people two days after a tick bite who had a rash, same as what we had published back in 2008 with C3A and C4A. So I said, all right, we're going to use the same methods. And then I treated them with antibiotics for three weeks, and I'd saved all their Paxgene tubes in the freezer so I could look at that. And then if they were still symptomatic or still had a positive vision contrast test, I treated them with my CIRS protocol. So what we found is that if we looked at acute Lyme disease and compared genomic findings to controls, we had, let's get my number here, 700 and... We had about 750 genes that were abnormal of acute versus control. Then we looked at post-antibiotics compared to those controls and of people who had, had acute Lyme. We found now 850 genes that were abnormal. There actually it were got more, worse. more abnormal genes after antibiotics. I'm going to circle back to that in just a second. Interesting. When we treated them with CIRS, we were down to 220 genes abnormal, and when we treated them with VIP, we had 15 genes abnormal. We turned our Lyme patients into controls. Now, the fascinating thing is that after antibiotics, the main abnormalities are persistent suppression of ribosomal gene activity, mitochondrial gene activity, and you need to know that these mitochondrial genes are encoded in our own DNA. They're called nuclear encoded. The poor mitochondria has got its genes, but the nucleus doesn't let it let them do anything, at least not do very much. We also saw that the genes compared to treated with antibiotics who are fixed with CIRS were almost all gene activity of white blood cells, of, of replication of DNA, correction of mitochondrial nuclear uh, genes, but correction of genes involved with neurologic inflammatory events. It was stunning. So this idea of three stages of Lyme, which I thought is stupid from the beginning of, you know, late stage being neurologic, the late stage stuff is happening within 48 hours of a tick bite. It is mechanism, its mechanism is regulated by abnormal gene transcription. So let me ask a question here. And, and I, I didn't quite follow all the numbers in terms of you know, the, yeah. the, the cohort and who's ending up in, in what uh, quartile or, or category. Is chronic, quote-unquote, chronic Lyme disease being caused by antibiotics? Well, if you read a nice paper published in 2015, I've forgotten the lead authors. Wiley uh, is, is a publisher. Uh, antibiotics, use and abuse. Tetracycline is widely used and macrolides are widely used in treatment of Lyme disease and if you think about what is a mitochondria 
Mitochondria are called protobacteria. They were engulfed into cells eons ago, and that's why they have got four membranes and not two. And it's, you know, a fascinating idea that the energy powerhouse of the cell was engulfed in symbiosis being what it was. Uh, there were, there is, there's problems. But when you take antibiotics, tetracycline especially, you will adversely affect mitochondrial function. And almost as bad are macrolides. Now, I was trained that tetracycline and doxycycline and macrolides are all anti-inflammatory and the benefits that I would see beyond antibiotics or people that weren't sickened by, by an infectious disease to begin with, they got better, it was anti-inflammatory. And I've got to rethink that whole idea because now that we know about mitochondrial kinetics being affected adversely by, by uh, other uh, other environmental exposures, let's run quickly to a minute to, to Babesia. Remember, with Babesia, you've got nuclear DNA of these apicomplexins, and whether it's malaria or imeria or sarcocystis, they're all they're all doing the same thing. They've got nuclear DNA, they've got mitochondrial DNA to generate energy, but they also have the dark phase of photosynthesis. They've got chloroplast DNA in them. And if you, you know, if you're a cell, if you're an organism living inside a red blood cell, it's kind of dark. <laughs> Pretty much. So, I mean, to have dark phase photosynthetic genes operating, generating ATP, sounds like a pretty good idea. Good survival technique. And yet, when we look at treatment of malaria, it all fails because nobody has any FDA cleared drug to use to knock out the chloroplast DNA. Now, we have it in, 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 in veterinary medicine because there's an atrazine receptor that's knocked out by one of the drugs made by Bayer. It's called Baycol. And if you treat a racehorse with EPM, this uh, equine protozoa meningoencephalitis, it's, it's an apicomplexin illness. It's, it's, it's sarcosystis. And a good, a good outcome right now for that horse is for the horse to be able to stand up in the stall and not just roll over and die. Mm. But if you treat that horse with my full protocol, which I've done, you have antibiotics, and I use, <laughs> I use high-dose Zithromax, and then we have Actos, for the, for the inflammatory stuff, Babesia makes a GPI toxin, so we need to block that. Then cholestyramine added, we block the toxin with that. Then we give them mepron together with the, you know, that whole gamish added along. And then we give them with Baycol. takes three months to do, but those horses are back racing again within a month because we knocked out the AP complex and dark phase photosynthesis genes. Is there... so let's circle back to that. Okay. Are, are we doing things that we don't know about to mitochondria when we use doxycycline in Lyme disease? That's and a good if question. We use, if we use antibiotics to treat Lyme disease, how come we have 100 genes more now turned on? Is that coming from exacerbation of the mitochondrial injury? Because there's more mitochondrial genes injured after antibiotics than before. So here's another interesting question. And going back to the idea that cancer is a mitochondrial dysfunction, 
and uh, energy production. We should then see cancer showing up in Lyme disease, chronic Lyme disease patients after 20 or so years, right? The cancer patients I see do not have the same mitochondrial abnormalities. It's different. Okay. It's different. Now, and so one more question, help me clear up here. Do statins interfere with mitochondria? Is that where we get the muscle soreness from? There are about 10 uh, ubiquitins in, in mitochondrial function. And you, you hear about statins blocking HMG-CoA reductase, and you need to supplement with CoQ10 because ubiquitin levels will be low. It turns out if we only look at, at ubiquitin 9 and 10, which is what you get with CoQ10, you're missing the other eight that are vitally important. I can't answer that question logically, but I do know that LDL, oxidized LDL, is a hugely important inducer of gene activity so that if you have pro-inflammatory gene activation by LDL and you give someone a statin, statins are anti-inflammatory and I think they get that because they block LDL. You know, most people don't have a real firm grasp on the inflammation of atherosclerosis and I'm not saying that I do, believe me I'm not, but I do know that if we look at some of the uh, kind of targeting mechanisms along endothelial cells like APOE1 with its two hands, it'll, it'll bind to MMP9 and bind to PI1 and MMP9 is released to then help transport LDL across endothelial membrane through the endothelial cell, through the epithelial side of the endothelial membrane through the basement membrane and into the subanimal space. I mean, that's a heck of a journey for a big molecule like LDL, right? That takes a lot of energy. Yeah, and you've got to have a carrier to do that. Yep. And then you've got a macrophage. Guess why with macrophages? You've got a macrophage engulfing LDL, called now called a foam cell, recycling MMP9 back into circulation. And we look at MMP9 and Pi-1, they're sky high in Lyme disease for most patients, and that's one of the vital steps in the protocol is to normalize MMP9. How about that? And since we're talking about circulation and inflammation and endothelial, and I know nitric oxide has more functions than just the, the ENOS, where does nitric oxide fall into this inflammatory syndrome? It's been one of the fascinating questions is that when we look at all these mechanisms that that we're publishing, you don't find nitric oxide anywhere. Why? <laughs> it's such a central molecule. And it's regulated so tightly by so many genes that it may be coming out for a minute, but it does not stick around long enough to cause the damage that, that come from gene activation. Hmm. Nitric oxide is, is not a gene regulator. There, there's a, I'll have to give you the reference on this because I can't pull it off the top of my head. Some interesting studies showing a link between uh, nitric, particularly INOS, inducible nitric oxide uh, yeah. r- release over time and rebound sleep and its regulation in sleep and also the diminishment of just basal nitric oxide 
physiological nitric oxide over time be one of the mechanisms by which older people sleep less and have less rebound sleep after a stressful event. So a child has an exciting day and they sleep for eight hours on the way home. Or you get the flu and you sleep for a couple of days to recover. And then as we lose the ability to, to produce the nitric oxide, we don't have that function as much later on. I'm having a little fun with this one. Okay. Tell me what stratification of the INOS effects were you able to show based on low levels of MSH? I can't help you. You're beyond my pay, my pay grade. Melanocyte <laughs> stimulating hormone and VIP, vasoactive intestinal polypeptide, okay. are hugely important in what they do in the ventral medial nucleus of the hypothalamus, especially elsewhere as well, to regulate circadian rhythms. Hmm. And if we look at any medical intervention and ascribe causation of benefit or causation of, of a lack of benefit to that intervention without controlling for these hypothalamic neuropeptide regulatory hormones, I'm going to say you miss the upstream events. What did you look, what did you show about the master controllers? We showed beautifully that VIP is a potent anti-inflammatory. And then we showed in, in March of 2017, and some papers linked on our website, is that we could use VIP to correct gray matter nuclear atrophy. That was a big deal. That's huge. Then we also yeah. have, we uh, were excited because no one in the world had published data like we did. And what we were able to show is that VIP and adequate doses, in adequate time, you need about 12 doses a day for six months, corrects beautifully multi-nuclear atrophy. You show me someone who's brain dead, who on Neuroquant doesn't have much in the way of, of, of nuclear substance, <laughs> you think they would like to have their brain back? Absolutely. And how about people with concussions? Even more important. Uh, maybe another day I'll tell you what happened when we sent the VIP data and the Neuroquan data, first of all, to the NFL owners, then to the NFL Players Association. Uh, the, the lead physician for the NFL Players Association is a fellow who's in my med school class at Duke. Not a word. So repetitive head trauma, repetitive concussive head trauma that we see, uh, and so many of our vets exposed to, to loud noises, you know, those are the same CIRS illnesses in the brain. It's a different mechanism to get there, but Lyme and Mold will both take you to the same place. And that's the fascinating thing as I dive continually into the Lyme world, and I've only really been studying deeply for the past two, two and a half years, is how much overlap there is between these different mitochondrial diseases or chronic inflammatory, however you want to state it. And, and like you said, there are many ways that you get to St. Louis, but it's really, it's the same mechanism over and over and over again. Now, Let's be sure. 
just before you get wound up too far. Okay. You said mitochondrial diseases, and I'm going to be a little pushy. Good. Surprise, surprise. And say that it is nuclear encoded mitochondrial genes ah, okay. that are the driving force. That's an because important we, distinction, yes. When we fix those, the mitochondria resets. Ah. We regenerate I got it. mitochondrial function. And you will not do that with VIP because VIP is fixing genes, not the electron transport chain. I see. I see. One other thing you need to know. Okay. And that is, were you aware that mitochondria have ribosomes? No. They do. So what are they doing? (laughs) <laughs> They're making protein, mitochondrial proteins, under the influence of mitochondrial genes. Now, was this these ribosomes thrown away? I was reading recently about the junk RNA that, oh, it's not doing much, so we're just going to... It's gonna, not junk. <laughs> yeah, you know, so we're just not going to study it because we don't know what it's doing. Right, right. And we, we, it's, it's not junk. Remember that each cell has got literally hundreds of thousands of ribosomes. And ribosomes have structures. It's called the sarsen-ricin loop. Here is where an amino acid, uh, amino acyl transferase, is active on this one little point sticking almost like, like in, in a bulge from the small ribosome which subunit into the large. And one amino acid is added to another in a process called elongation. And there's an initiation of elongation and a termination of elongation. And a protein is made through this sarsen-ricin loop. But this sarsen-ricin loop is not unique to people versus orangutans. They're the same in all living creatures. Every single living creature has got a sarsen-ricin loop with the same structure in it plants and amoeba and people and, and uh, you know, it's just, what happened to evolution? Evolution has not changed these structural injured, structural mechanisms and these areas of the ribosome, the sarsen-ricin loop, are damaged by compounds made by one-cell creatures called ribotoxins. And if you disrupt initiation of elongation or continuation of elongation, you get defective protein functioning, which will be detected by nuclear factors called granzymes that say this cell is abnormal mm-hmm. and activates what's called apoptosis. Right. And apoptosis is a programmed cell death in an organized way to dissolve the cell and digest the constituents without setting off inflammation. Remember, DNA in blood is intensely inflammatory. And if you have disruptions of granzyme interacting with capsaicins and death receptors and all that, you don't get apoptosis, you got necroptosis, which is one set of inflammatory abnormalities up the wazoo. And this was the suggestion that I still think it makes sense looking at why do we have more gene abnormalities in Lyme after antibiotics compared to before, is that now we have compounded necroptosis because antibiotics do not fix the ribosomal gene injury. They don't fix the mitochondrial 
nuclear gene injury, and they don't fix a lot going on with insulin as well. This is absolutely fascinating. And if we are engendering necroptosis, we are adding inflammatory responses. And the good news is that when you come along with my my CRS protocols, you will down-regulate those from 850 down to 250 nearabouts, 222 I think it was. And then when we have VIP added in, we get down to basically low, uh, low double figures. So event, what you're saying is an event happens, it trips the DNA to switch on for whatever purposes, survival. Like crazy. And then whatever the initial trigger may or may not be removed or it's down-regulated or in Lyme disease, maybe it's buried and just hiding behind a biofilm, whatever it's doing. But you haven't gone back and down-regulated the genes again. Right. So until you down-regulate these genes, there's no hope. Correct. Crazy. Now, you mentioned insulin, and again, this is a personal point of mine, is I have to be very careful what I eat because my insulin sensitivity is terrible. So where does insulin come in with these? And 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 I'm sure th- since we're talking about insulin and growth and non-growth, there's also mTOR lurking in the background somewhere. And mTOR is a downstream. When if you look at the P13K pathways with mTOR, those are downstream regulatory events. Okay. They, they, they come after the, after the, the barn door has been open. But have, having said all that, what is happening in our cohorts, and this is our next paper coming out, is that the basic mechanisms in all these chronic fatiguing illnesses is suppression of ribosomal and mitochondrial gene function. What my protocol does is correct ribosomal and mitochondrial gene function with an overshoot, it overcorrects it. So that instead of being the same as controls, it's over controls. And if you look at our paper that's on the Surviving World website on the homepage, it's a link for the paper published in um, November 2016, is that when we step in after the protocol has been done leading up to VIP and then use VIP, we downregulate the overshot ribosomal correction by some total of 10 to the 43rd power. That is a big number. People are better off than when they started? Interesting question. VIP restores regulation to equal to controls. Your suggestion was one that Jimmy Ryan and I had talked about, is our fancy British sports car going to last longer if we rev it at 4,000 RPMs or whether we let it idle at 1,000 RPMs? Hmm. Not sure that's the right answer. But the real issue is that this, this swinging pendulum of gene activation, the difference between suppression and activation, if we look at the absolute value, it's about the same. We want the absolute value to be equal to controls, and VIP does that. But there's a missing piece, 
a missing piece in this whole analysis that, that we had back in March of, excuse me, February, yeah, November of 2016. The missing piece is, and Lyme showed us there, is the incredible increase of insulin substrate genes. What happens with insulin is that it will bind to an insulin receptor provided there's not cytokine injury and hold on to sugar. And remember, this is a serine 3-and-E kinase pathway mechanism. And if you if your kinase is put on phosphates, if you put phosphate, which is a huge oxygen-rich moiety, onto uh, 3-and-E, amino acid, instead of serine, you disrupt that insulin receptor. It doesn't work right. That's, that's type 2 diabetes. That's obesity. That's a different story. But in Lyme, we're not looking at a serine 3-and-E kinase mechanism we're looking at insulin substrate abnormalities. And what happens here is that the insulin receptor with its sugar and with its insulin itself is incorporated into the cell like a bubble. And pinocytosis is a fancy word, but basically you take that receptor, you put a membrane around it, you absorb it, and the membrane stays intact, and we now call it an endosome. This endosome is like a little bubble. The normal mechanism is that the endosome will fuse to a lysosome. The lysosome will acidify the endosome. That opens the endosome up, releases the sugar, releases the insulin receptor, releases insulin, and everybody, the sugar gets used, the receptor is recycled, insulin is recycled, and life goes on. But if you have this situation where the insulin substrate blocking the fusing of the endosome to the lysosome, if that occurs, you will not have acidification of the endosome. You actually will have sodium influx into the endosome. It doesn't acidify. And the insulin now is not recycled. The insulin receptor is not recycled. Sugar is not given to the cell. Two things happen here. One is you act like you're insulin resistant without elevated insulin. Because hmm. the insulin is pooling inside endosomes inside of a cell. Now that can be made worse if you have an additional injury from inflammation. Now, with interferon gamma being made, and remember I talked about one of the amino acyl T transferases, these tRNA mechanisms that help with initiation of protein elongation bind to gamma interferon and to an enzyme that sits as a hinge in the middle glycolysis called GAP-DH. If you think about what are we doing with glycolysis, that sugar that we want to provide for energy, it has got six carbons and it's in a ring. You stick a phosphate on it, you stick another phosphate, you change it around, you split it in half. GAP-DH sits as a regulatory step that lets further production mechanisms go so that now the cell, if GAP-DH is working, It'll make pyruvate. Now, remember pyruvate, three carbons taken into a mitochondria, whipped into the electron transport chain, and out come magically 36 ATP. Remember all that? Yes. 
if we look at glycolysis, there is a net consumption of 2 ATP, but a net gain of 4 ATP as we make pyruvate. But if we have a low oxygen delivery situation, like we do in line with capillary hypoperfusion, will the mitochondria, even if the genes are right, which they're not, but even if they were, will the mitochondria be able to metabolize pyruvate without oxygen into ATP and in water and CO2? No. So what the cell does in anaerobic conditions is it converts pyruvate to lactate. And how do you think lactate helps the cell live? It doesn't. Not very much. So what the cell does in the face of capillary hyperperfusion and the face of mitochondrial gene injury, it will now shut down GAP-DH to stop excessive pyruvate production. And the glucose that was delivered with insulin and insulin substrates sits inside the cell. Does this poison the cell as well? Sure that does. glucose just hanging out there? So now you've got this c- condition where you've got, I'm sure, brain fog, memory lapses, uh, fatigue coming out the ears or out, <laughs> out your fingers and bones, just fatigue. You can see where the cells of the body just are no longer working. Would, last question here, because I know we're bumping up on time. Would a temporary move to something like a ketogenic diet to downregulate that side of the pathway and upregulate the, no, the fat and the ketone nothing, help? It does nothing for the inflammatory process. Okay. If you don't fix the mitochondria, then, and you, you won't do that with purines, believe me. You need to fix the nuclear encoded genes. But the real issue is that if you have the biggest source of ribotoxins present, and that's coming from water-damaged buildings, the number one, number two, and number three sources are, of ribotoxins are actinomycetes, bacterial endotoxin, and then to weigh down at 1% are mycotoxins. If you have a simultaneous exposure of a Lyme patient with a water-damaged building, and that's only going to happen 70% of the time. It's everywhere. Yeah. If you have ribotoxins added to a Lyme patient, their chance of having normal ribosomal function is Zippo. Their chance of having normal uh, mitochondrial function is Zippo. And then when someone gives them antibiotics excessively and poisons a lot of the rest of the mitochondrial ribosomal chain of, of, of sequence of events, that's even worse. But the biggest source of nuclear atrophy, the absolute biggest, is the mitochondrial injury and ribosomal injury that comes from a Marcon's. Multiply antibiotic-resistant coagulase-negative staphs will live in dental areas and in the back of the nose in people who are low of MSH. Show me a good Lyme patient sick for more than six months who doesn't have low MSH. There's a few, but not very many. And 80% of them have got Marcon's. Marcon's are making their own compound. It's about 1,000 Daltons in size. It has the mass spectrometry uh, appearance of a polycyclic ether toxin, and it is now the greatest source of injury to mitoribosomes there is, and it's the greatest source of nuclear atrophy.
And with the Marcons, are they using, is that BEG spray? What are they doing for that? We know what only use BEG. There are some physicians that come along and have really bastardized what I've done, and they've used antifungals. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no basis ever, ever, ever to use antifungals. Don't tell me about Canada. I won't give you a chance to even get that word out of your mouth. <laughs> the, real issue, the real issue is that what has happened with these antifungal use, they're the most potent mutagenic agents we've got, azoles, and, and, and just the story of Benamil. It makes things worse. Example. Yeah. Yeah. And what you get is horizontal gene transfer right. of bits of DNA, plasmids of DNA, for antibiotic and antifungal resistance. So now, by misdiagnosing, and, and I've used the word malpractice, and people got mad at me about that, I'll just say misuse of antifungals, we have created monsters uh, that are Marcons, and we can't use back spray anymore. So what we use is another modification of EDTA. It's a biofilm buster. And that makes it's, sense, yeah. It's, 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 it's absolutely fascinating. The circle keeps going round and round and round and round, and it goes round and round around SIRS, and it gets to one. Here's, here's the final point. Okay. It gets to one basic mechanism. What is this disease? What is the chronic fatiguing illness of which Lyme and post-Lyme is just one? It is lack of regulation of regulation of DNA transcription. I'll say that again. There are at least two layers of regulatory events that regulate what goes on abnormally and perpetuates the abnormal finding in DNA replication. And if you don't fix the DNA replication, you will never fix the disease. If you think antibiotics alone are the answer, I got 850 genes that are being activated or suppressed saying, thank you, we'll continue to poison this patient. Fascinating. You've really illuminated a new pathway for me and explained so much of what I see in my practice. And when I speak to people who have had Lyme disease for years and years and years or decades and decades, it makes so much sense. It makes absolutely so much sense. Do their neuroquants, see what brain injury you've got. Do their nasal culture, make sure that you send that to, to Microbiology DX. I, I don't have any financial relationship with them. They're the only one that does the culture right that I know of. And then do the genomics. Because if you think you can diagnose ribosomal or mitochondrial injury uh, without genomics, i got news for you, you're wrong. The genomics are not 23andMe. These are not SNPs. This is differential gene activation. This is transcriptomics. It costs you a couple thousand dollars. And if you spend $2,000 a week on hyperbarics, it's a pretty damn good deal. Yes, it is. Dr. Shoemaker, you have been incredibly generous with your time. I know you're a very busy man. If people are inspired to learn more, where can they go? And B, if they're inspired to drive out to Pocomoke, can they do that and meet with you? Well, I'm, I'm, I've, I retired in 2012. I was nearly dead, and VIP saved my life. So uh, some, somebody else will have to take care of them. Surviving Mold website, www.survivingmold.com, has a list of certified physicians. It's got literally 50 papers that, that Jimmy Ryan and I have written that are, that are worth taking a look at. 
their, the next paper coming up, probably be an internal medicine review again. They were, they were pretty good, uh, uh, editors were, were, were kind, so we'll probably use them again. This next paper, looking at SARS and rice and loop and the validation of the mitochondrial ribosomal theory, uh, should be out in a month. Uh, the easiest way to keep abreast of what we're doing is to sign up to get a newsletter from Surviving Mold. It's free. We don't rip you off or anything else. If you want to know what's going on, survivingmold.com is where you want to go. I'm heading right over there. Cool beans. Nice talking to you. Let's do that again someday. This was a really fascinating interview, and I thought it fit into the study that was just released this week by Dr. Alcott proving the existence of that post-Lyme disease treatment syndrome. Yes. They're both indicating that something happens after treatment. And Dr. Shoemaker, he really doesn't get it into, and really, I'm not sure Dr. Alcott's study does either. It's like, is the bacteria still in there? I mean, we still need these. Nobody knows yet. It's it's we still not there. However, people are sick and stay sick. And Dr. Shoemaker says, well, of course they're sick. These 800 genes have been turned on. Plus, if you've had a long course of antibiotics, you have 900 genes turned on that then need to be downregulated if you're going to return to your baseline of health, your good state of health. Clearly, something goes on after you get infected. Now, one of the differences, I believe, Dr. Shoemaker says these genes get turned on 48 hours after being infected. And I think Dr. Alcott's study is much more kind of after a standard course of antibiotics, assuming that these changes happen down the road. According to Dr. Shoemaker, no, they're happening almost immediately after infection. If you like what we're doing, head on over to iTunes, leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you don't know your Lyme score yet, do yourself a favor and head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com front slash tracker and fill out the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker because it's free. Yes, it is. And a quick reminder, our top 10 transcripts are out and the best way to get those is to become a patron of Lime Ninja Radio. Head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and sign up. We'll get those right to you. Also, April 28th, head on over to the Midcoast Maine Lime Conference. I'll be the MC there. Say hello. I'd love to see you. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know ninjas can whistle in five different languages? Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.